Psalm 69. Psalm 69. This psalm is a cry for help in a time of trouble. It's a psalm that expresses David's grief. And it's especially a psalm where David is declaring his innocence. In other words, David right now is like a guy standing up in a courtroom and he's shouting out, I'm innocent, I tell you. This is also a very messianic psalm. It's a prophetic psalm. That is a messianic psalm about Jesus Christ. It gives us an amazing description of the suffering of Jesus Christ. It was written about a thousand years before any of these events took place. Again, showing us the, the, you know, the, the surety of the Word of God. Now, Psalm 22 is also a messianic psalm, a psalm about Christ. It describes Jesus' physical suffering. Psalm 69 here focuses more on his emotional and spiritual suffering. Like Psalm 22, this psalm was written by David approximately, as I said, 1,000 years before the events described here in Psalm 69 as well as in Psalm 22. Both psalms start with the sufferings of David, but they have their complete meaning and fulfillment in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Now, its structure is as follows. First, there's a cry for deliverance that expresses David's weariness in verses 1 through 3. Secondly, there's a description of David's enemies in verse 4. Third, there's an expression of, of grief expressing David's sense of feeling alone, of isolation in verses 5 through 12. Fourth, there's a cry for deliverance from the mire, verses 13 through 18. Fifth, there's an expression of grief expressing David's being disgraced, verses 19 through 21. And sixth, there's a prayer for God to bring his judgment upon the wicked, in verses 22 through 28. And seventh, there's a determination by David to praise the Lord. This is one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament, and it's often applied to the ministry and the suffering of Jesus. Verse 4 here, like John 15, 25, speaks of Jesus' many enemies. The experience of being mocked by his brothers here in verse 8 is expressed in John chapter 7, verse 5. Verse 9 here portrays David's zeal for God. Jesus showed great zeal when he threw the money changers out of the temple in John chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. Paul quoted part of Psalm 69:9 here in Romans 15:3. Jesus' great suffering is portrayed here in verse 20 through 21. We find it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels. Verses 22 through 28 are quoted in Romans 11, 9 through 10. And Peter replied, verse 29 here of Psalm 69 to Judas, as we can see that in Acts chapter 1, verse 20. The theme is a cry of misery in a world of trouble. Now, we may have to suffer severely, we don't know, for our devotion to God. But you see, that should cause us to look ahead as, as the, the, the joy that was before the Lord as He looked beyond, again, the cross. The joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross, Scripture tells us. Again, any type of, of you know, persecution or suffering that we go through, that should cause us to look ahead with joy to that day when all evil and all injustice is going to be gone forever. 
The writer or the author is David of this psalm. And again, this psalm is clearly about Jesus Christ. It's one of the most obvious messianic psalms in the book of Psalms. The setting of Psalm 69 is the condition of a hurting man, David, who's asking God to help against his many troubles and his enemies. So let's begin now in Psalm 69 with verses 1 through 4. David begins, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I have come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is dry. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. They are mighty who destroy me. Being my enemies wrongfully, though I have stolen nothing, I still must restore it. The tone of this psalm is set for us in verses 1 through 4. Again, it's a complaint about David's sad troubles, as well as a plea to God asking for God's help. And I'm sure we can all relate to David. We've all at some time or another felt so overwhelmed with problems that we just can't seem to solve with such pressures that we don't see how we can keep going on. And such demands on us and and our time that we know that we can't meet. And on top of all of that, we feel that we can't even, you know, pray anymore. You know, to, to, to put our hurts and our needs before God. But David here relates to us using strong pictures that clearly describe how David was feeling. He talks in these verses here, one through four, about being in water up to his neck. You know, and sometimes we feel like we're just drowning in our problems. He's also stuck in mire, it says here, where he can't get a solid foothold. You know, kind of like sinking quicksand. You just, you just can't get a good stronghold and get out of that mess. In the same way, we talk about drowning in deep troubles or being stuck somewhere that we can't get out of. The opening words of this psalm of anguish use the strong picture, like I said, of a person about to drown. Not just in deep waters, but also, Psalm 40 verse 2 says, in a horrible pit. And this powerful description uses language that speaks of extreme anguish. Notice he says in verse 3, I am weary. Uh, He said, I am so tired. You know, I'm so exhausted of, 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 because of what I'm going through. I feel like a drowning man that might, go, that, that might totally lose his voice. So David is, David is so worn out from praying and crying out to the Lord. Two things seem to make David's pain especially intense. First of all, he hasn't given his enemies any reason to bring these evil attacks upon him. Notice he says, they hate me without a cause. And these words tell us about David's experience in a very difficult time in his life. And it seems that his enemies are countless. They're more than the the hairs on his head. You know, and and they're more upsetting to him. You know, they're more upsetting to him than how many there are. What's more upsetting to him as how many there are is that he says, I haven't given them any reason for their attack on me. His problem was brought on by countless enemies who were trying to destroy him. They hated him for no reason. No reason at all. And and he was forced to give up his possessions, it says, which I didn't steal. Now, Jesus quoted verse 4 here in Psalm 69 in the Upper Room Discourse in John 15, 25. 
And referring to verses 1 and 2, Amy Carmichael wrote this, Our waters are shallow because His were deep. Any attack upon us, it's hard to deal with. But when it's uncalled for, when it's an uncalled for attack, man, it's unbearable. And yet these words also are so prophetic of the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Secondly, David has been asking God for help and God hasn't answered him, verse 3 tells us. And I'm sure we could all relate. You know, we pray, we call out to God and it just seems like he's not listening or he doesn't answer. But you have to remember this. Even though David was worn out from calling on God, he didn't stop calling upon God. He continued to pray, and so must we. This psalm proves it. David cried out until he was physically exhausted, verse 3 says. It says, his throat was dry. His eyes are puffy and red from crying, but he still trusted God to save him. When we're overcome by death or tragedy, we don't have to collapse. We don't have to fall apart. We don't have to lose hope because we can turn to the Lord and we can ask Him to save us and to help us. The tears will come, but you know what? Our crying won't be for nothing. Hebrews 5, verses 7 through 10 describes Jesus' earthly experience the best. While Jesus was here on earth, notice what it says. He, Jesus, offered prayers and pleadings with a loud cry and tears to the one, speaking of God, who could deliver Him out of death. And God heard his prayers because of his reverence for God. So even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things that he suffered. In this way, God qualified him as a perfect high priest, and he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. And God designated him to be a high priest in the line of Melchizedek. These verses in Hebrew tell us that in his humanity, Jesus wasn't exempt from those feelings of being almost overwhelmed. The same feelings that sometimes overtake us. We read in the Gospels where Jesus got thirsty. He got hungry. He got tired showing his humanity. That's what makes him a great high priest. He can relate to us in those things. But Jesus prayed. And we read that the Father heard him. And Jesus grew in the knowledge of God's ways and in obedience as a result of his suffering. And clearly, that is our pattern as well when we feel overwhelmed we need to pray we must pray and we need to trust god to keep and to teach us as well jesus said in luke 18 1 men always ought to pray and not lose heart and the inference is if you're losing heart you're not praying we read in psalm 61 2 from the end of the earth i will cry to you when my heart is overwhelmed lead me to the rock which is Christ that is higher than I. There was an urgency in David's cry here because, you see, he was overwhelmed by what was going on in his life. And he was fainting under the pressure. David felt like he was at the end of his rope, at the end of the earth, because he was far away from home and he was away from the sanctuary of God. And David was describing here his spiritual condition. He was describing his need to know the presence of God in what was going on. And the image, the picture of the Lord as a rock is a familiar one in David's writings. We see it in Psalm 18, 2 and 31, Psalm 46, Psalm 62, 2 and uh, Psalm 62, 6 through 7. David couldn't climb any higher on his own. 
David needed the Lord to help him and to keep him going. And remember the words of Jesus. He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. We are never so, but we are never so far away that we can't pray to God. Look at verse 5. David says, Oh God, you know my foolishness and my sins are not hidden from you. This verse obviously couldn't have been spoken by Jesus. It's David's confession of foolishness or transgression. We all should be constantly confessing our sins to God. Again, it could not be an expression of Christ because Jesus was perfect. He had no sin. Instead of confessing his sins, you'd expect to hear David said, Lord, you know, I didn't steal. I didn't steal from these guys, no matter what they might say. Or you'd expect him to say, Lord, you know, I didn't give them any reason to hate me. But because of what he just said in verse four, I'm innocent, Lord. Instead, we find David admitting his foolishness and his guilt. I mean, this is a real switch, but it's kind, the kind of thing that we learn to expect from those who are godly. When I'm in trouble, I, you know, even though maybe I, I didn't deserve it or I, I, you know, I had no cause for it, I say, Lord, you know, forgive me of my sin. You know, I, I know that I, I, you know, I, I'm foolish and I know that I am not perfect. And again, this is what you would expect to hear from somebody that, you know, like David, who's godly. As much as they can, they live without blame before others. But they still know that they lack wisdom. They still admit their deep guilt before God. In fact, it's their deep awareness of their guilt before God that keeps them close to God. It's knowing, as Paul said, that there's nothing good about this flesh. There's nothing good about me. If there's anything good about it, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything else is bad. It's me. So I realize there's nothing good in this flesh. And so, you know, I, I stand guilty before God. There's a deep awareness that, that, that there's guilt before God. And that's what keeps him close to God. It's what causes people to live morally upright lives. Look at verses 6 through 12. David goes on and says, Let not those who wait for you, O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed because of me. Let not those who seek you be confounded because of me, O God of Israel. Because for your sake I have borne reproach. Shame has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children. Because zeal for your house has eaten me up. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me when I wept and chastened my soul with fasting. That became my reproach. I also made sackcloth my garment. I became a byword to them. Those who sit in the gate speak against me. And I am the song of the drunkards. <clears throat> in verses 1 through 5, David complained that he was being unfairly attacked. Here now, he explains why he was being unfairly attacked. Lord, it's because of you. In other words, it's for your sake, he says in verse 7. And because of the passion that I have for you, Lord, for the passion that I have for your house, I have this passion that burns within me, he says. That's why I'm suffering. Jesus taught about suffering for righteousness sake when he gave the, 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 the Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things against you falsely for my sake. You see, the key phrases are for righteousness sake and for my sake. 
You see, this isn't a promise of blessing for people who are persecuted for being obnoxious and extremists. And this is important to understand. This is a promise for righteousness and for those who do it for Christ's sake. It's not a, a promise of blessing for people who act foolishly and bring shame and embarrassment to the Lord Jesus Christ, who are obnoxious and extremists. It's for those who suffer because of righteousness and for identifying themselves with Jesus Christ, that I belong to him. Verse 9 clearly identifies with Jesus in the New Testament. In verse 9a, the first part of verse 9, John tells us that the disciples remembered that verse and applied it to Jesus when he cleansed the temple in John chapter 2, verse 17. The second part of verse 9 here, Paul applied to Jesus in Romans 15, 3. And Paul's point is that Jesus' behavior is an example for us in the sense that we shouldn't seek to please ourselves, but rather work for others' well-being. This should also be true even in situations where we're being slandered by our enemies, where we're being rejected by our families, ridiculed by mockers, and criticized by people who are in authority over us. If we read through the first part of the psalm here, with situations like that in mind, we'll find many examples of the kind of insults or other abuses that Jesus endured for us that we should be willing to endure for God and other people. Enemies, for example. The first example goes back to verses 1 through 4, where David is complaining that his enemies, notice verse 4, says, are more than the hairs on my head. David's enemies were countless. Jesus quoted this same verse himself in John 15, 25. These verses applied to Jesus Christ. There were scribes, there were Pharisees, there were priests, there were Levites who just plain hated Jesus. And their hatred eventually led to his crucifixion. There were his brothers in verse 8. His own brothers didn't believe in him. John 7, 2 through 5. So he really did become a stranger to his brother, like said here in verse 8. He became a byword, verse 11 says, which means a proverb. We know that Christians are ridiculed today. We see it happening more than ever before. We know we're called the religious right. We're called fanatics, holy rollers, Jesus freaks. You've heard them all. Drunkards, he says in verse 12. He says, they sit in the gate. They meant to be a ruler of the people and honorable people. And they were against him. Jesus himself put up with a lifetime of insults for God and for us. And when Jesus spoke the truth about sin, man, the religious leaders, they hated it. They would go nuts. They'd go crazy. Jesus showed them they were children of their fathers, the devil, who had stoned the prophets and killed those who were sent to them. Jesus told them in John 8, 41, you're doing the same things your own father does. And man, they turned against him. They turned on him angrily and they accused Jesus of being an illegitimate child. They probably knew that Jesus was born shortly after the marriage of Joseph and Mary. But didn't know that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So they threw in his face the accusations, the rumors that he was illegitimate. He says, we are not illegitimate children. Jesus knew that he was begotten by the Holy Spirit and he took their accusations mildly. But he let them know 
that their true background, about their true background, he said in John 8, 44, you belong to your father, the devil. The first time Jesus ever spoke in public, his message on salvation by the simple electing grace of God stirred up fury in the Pharisees. And he, and he, didn't, he hadn't spoken very long before they got up and they led him to a cliff and they pushed him over. Luke 4, 29. When he cast out the demons, his enemies criticized him for working by the power of Satan. They said, hey, it's by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons, that you're able to cast out the demons. When he was on the cross, they mocked him with the claims that he, that he made. Uh, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the son of God. Again, when he was on the cross, they mocked him with the claims that he made. Hey, if you're the son of God, come down off of the cross. Prove it. They ignored his claim of deity that he was God more than suggested. And they more than suggested that he was himself a huge deceiver. If there was ever an example of somebody who was willing to go through the worst of abuses so that he could please God the Father, hey, it was Jesus. And he said, I always do those things that please him. If there was ever one whose personal experiences in life reflected the words of this psalm, it was Jesus Christ. Look at verses 13 through 18. David says here now, but as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, in the acceptable time, O God, in the multitude of your mercy. Hear me in the truth of your salvation. Deliver me out of the mire and let me not sink. Let me be delivered from those who hate me and out of the deep waters. Let not the flood water overflow me, nor let the deep swallow me up and let not the pit, excuse me, shut its mouth on me. Hear me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. Turn to me according to the multitude of your tender mercies. And do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in trouble. Hear me speedily. Draw near to my soul and redeem it. Deliver me because of my enemies. These verses remind us of verses 1 through 4, referring back to the mire and the danger of sinking in it. You know, there in verse 14, deep waters. And then in verse 15, the flood. A new picture is a pit that was likely to close its mouth over David, according to verse 15 here. The word pit here refers to a cistern or a well that normally had water at the bottom and was covered at the top with a stone. The picture here, the idea here of a cistern closing its mouth over David means something like being buried alive. It's like he said, I'm about to be buried alive. The new idea here is David describing himself as God's servant in verse 17, which puts us in mind of Jesus as God's exceptional servant. And Jesus said in Matthew 20, 28, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. The point is that Jesus is to be our example that we might live like he did. Jesus said that if we live to please God, the world would hate us because we're not like the world. Jesus said they hated me, so they'll hate you. They persecuted me, so they'll persecute you. And even though we may take abuse for his sake, and we will for sure, we will for sure if we're living close to him. And if we're being a true witness for Christ and we're living for righteousness, we're to put up with it. 
We are to put up with persecutions patiently and without retaliation. Why? That we might please God. This is a great privilege as well as a scary challenge. You see, if it wasn't for the power of Jesus Christ within, we wouldn't be able to respond to either. Because, you see, we'd put ourselves first like the world does and avoid the insults and the persecution. To live like Jesus, we have to grow in His power by having close fellowship with Him. Verses 19 through 21. He says, You know my reproach, my shame, and my dishonor. My adversaries are all before you. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. It helps... And it comforts us to know that God knows what we're going through. When we're hurting, whether it's from physical ailments or mistreatment, it's a natural thing to look around for somebody who might at least be able to show us some sympathy or offer us some comfort. But David says that when he was in trouble, there was nobody there for him. Nobody offered him any sympathy. No one provided for him even a little bit of comfort. Now, you might be going through that tonight. And a lot of people are alone in their grief and their suffering. And sometimes people don't naturally identify with those who are or comfort them. And if that's your case, remember that Jesus knows what you're going through right now. Because you see, he's gone through it himself. When he was in his great agony on the cross... Nobody showed any sympathy for Jesus. They mocked him. They ridiculed him. It says in verse 21, notice it says, They gave me gall for my food and for my thirst. They gave me vinegar to drink. This was 1,000 years before vinegar was ever given to Jesus Christ. You see, that's what makes Jesus such an understanding help to us. We find verse 21 quoted in all four gospel in Jesus' crucifixion. Verses 22 through 28. Let their table become a snare before them and their well-being a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your wrathful anger take, uh, take hold of them. Let their dwelling place be desolate. Let no one live in their tents. For they persecute the ones you have struck and talk of the grief of those you have wounded. Add iniquity to their iniquity and let them not come into your righteous, uh, righteousness. Let, let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. Verses 22 through 23 is quoted by Paul in Romans 11 verses 9 through 10 speaking about blessings that become curses. These verses are a prophecy of a judgment of God blinding most of the people in Israel, putting a veil over their eyes because of the rejection of Jesus Christ. Those things that should have been a great blessing to the Jewish people, that is because as adoption as sons, as the divine glory of the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises, the patriarchs, all of those things have become a snare and a trap to them, a stumbling block to them, and a payback for them in their unregenerate state, being unsaved. It means that if the blessings of God are misused, 
And there always are, and they always are, unless we let them lead us to faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior. He says those blessings will inevitably harden our hearts. And they'll drive us into more sins and eventually lead to even greater judgment. Now, David isn't, David isn't just asking for a personal deliverance from trouble, but for God's swift and total judgment on his enemies. And David's prayer for judgment builds in intensity as he continues to pray. And then it ends in the most terrible of all requests. In verse 28, he says, let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. Now, what is the book of the living or the book of life? I believe that every person who is born has their names written in the book of life. Because the Bible says God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So the will of God is that everybody, he wants everybody to be saved. But you see, if they don't believe in Jesus Christ, then on the basis of their not receiving Christ, then their names are taken out of the book of the living, whereas it could have been otherwise in, in the book of the living. And our churches, they are filled with a lot of unsaved people. Are their names in the Lamb's book of life? Probably. But you see, their names aren't going to stay there unless they make a decision for Jesus Christ. If individual Jews who are a chosen nation missed salvation because of the rejection of Christ, and if as a, a result the blessings of God that had been given to them became a curse for these people, then it's totally possible that many sitting in churches all across America today are also missing salvation because of their failure to trust in Jesus Christ in a personal way of faith and that their blessings have become curses too. For example, baptism. Baptism, it's meant to strengthen our faith by making the inward reality more clear to us. Baptism is is basically an outward display of an inward change, of something that's happened inside. But a lot of people have trusted in baptism without the inward commitment. They trust in baptism for their salvation. And they've said of themselves, they've judged themselves that they're saved without any true following of Christ. So the very thing that should have been a blessing has become a blessed, has become a false hope. The Lord's Supper is another one. The Lord's Supper is meant to show us the broken body and the atoning blood of Jesus Christ and to lead us to trust in Him and to put our faith in Him, not the ceremony. But again, some have put their salvation in the bread and in the cup. So the very thing that was meant to do us good has become a curse for us. And as we become superstitious, and then we become superstitious and even like pagans in our practice. Material possessions. They are from God. But they can be dangerous as well. They should lead us to God in thanks. Lord, thank you for what I possess. Thank you for the blessings of all that I possess. It it all comes from you, Lord. They should lead us to thank God, but sometimes they often lead us away from God. Look what I have. Look what I've done. Who says I need God? You know, I've done this myself. I worked hard for this rather than recognizing God has enabled me to work hard. He's enabled me to receive the things that I have. The Lord's Day, Sunday. This was this was a heavy thing that I that I read It's from uh, James Boyce's commentary, also from Donald G. Barnhouse. 
regarding the Lord's Day, Sunday, Sunday worship. After we defeated Japan in 1945, General MacArthur took control of the archives of the Japanese War Department. And translators went to work on the enemy's papers. They discovered that before the attack of Pearl Harbor, the Japanese had sent professors to the United States to study America's national character to determine what what would be the best time to attack the United States. When would they be most vulnerable? Their report said that the United States would be most vulnerable on a Sunday morning following a Friday when the Army and the Navy got paid. And that's exactly when Pearl Harbor was attacked, December 7, 1941. The point is that in earlier days, Sundays were sacred days. They were sacred days of rest and sacred days of worship. And I remember when I was a little boy, and it really wasn't that long ago. I remember stores being closed on Sunday. Markets closed on Sunday. A lot of businesses closed on Sunday because it was the Lord's Day. And, 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 it was, and it was honored. Even those who weren't Christians respected the Lord's Day. Like I said, businesses used to be closed. But that all changed by the winter of 1941. Our day of national blessing, Sunday, had become a curse. Even more so today. Because the Lord's Day is now full of sports and amusement. Satan knows what he's doing. We have Super Bowl Sunday where, again, how many people won't go to church because, you know what, i got to watch the game. Kids' sports leagues, soccer and softball and little league, they're on Sundays. And when those, those leagues are in session, hey, i, I, I got to take my kids to sports. They don't come to church. Pleasure trips. You know, it's a beautiful day outside and understanding. But you know what? Let's not go to church. Today. Let's go to the beach. Let's go to the mountains. Let's go do something else. So God turned what used to be a blessing into a curse. And that weekend at Pearl Harbor, they were unprepared and unable to meet the Japanese attack when it came. Barnhouse and Boyce said, God is not mocked. And we need to remember that the judgment of God will come to all sinners. Closing, in closing, verses 29 through 36. But I am poor and sorrowful. Let your salvation, O God, set me up on high. I will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify Him with thanksgiving. This also shall please the Lord better than an ox or a bull, which has horns and hooves. The humble shall see this and be glad. And, and you who seek God, your heart shall live, for the Lord hears the poor and does not despise his prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah, that they may dwell there and possess it. Also the descendants of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. David is saying here, let God be praised. Though there's a lot of tragedy in life, but for the Christian... Can there really be tragedy? Because see, Psalm 139 says, all the days of my life were written before I lived one moment of them. But nonetheless, we go through difficult things. But you know, those things never have the last word. God has the last word. The last word is always victory and praise. And that's how this psalm ends here by David. 
We need to plant the truth in our minds so that, that this truth in our minds so that, that so that nothing would ever erase it. And, and that it can we can hear it in our ears, that it be a constant, joyful, clear thought. Yes, in this world, there is and always will be a lot of pain and evil. I mean, that's a part of this life. That's what life is like in this world. Also, God doesn't always remove the pain in our life. He doesn't always remove the pain of troubled times. Jesus, remember, prayed in great agony in the garden, asking for the cup that he was about to drink to be removed, to be taken away from him. But it wasn't. You know, Paul prayed three times for that, that thorn of his, in his flesh to be taken away. But God says, no, Paul, my grace is sufficient. God heard the Lord's prayer and didn't despise his agony. In addition, he sent angels to minister to him and to strengthen him so that he might go through his trial gloriously for God. You can be sure that this will be the same for you. It'll be the same thing for you. Whatever cross you are given, tell God about it. And know that He'll hear you. He'll hear your prayers. And He will come to strengthen you. And you will definitely praise Him for that comfort for all those days, all those different times. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word, Lord. We thank You for being our wonderful God. Father, even in times of trouble, Lord, in times of difficulty, God. Lord, those times when we feel that the water is up to our neck and that we're drowning, that we're, we're being buried alive, God. And that, Father, we can't, we can't get a foothold on life. Father, we feel like we're, we're sinking in quicksand. But yet, like Peter, Lord, when he thought he was drowning, he said, Lord, save me. And Jesus reached out his hand and saved him. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what he did for the disciples back in those times, he will do for you today. But we need to, we need to live for righteousness sake and for his name's sake. We need to be in the will of God that he may take care of us and protect us and that he may hold out a saving hand to us he's the god of all comfort he's the god of all grace he's he's the god of all supply he's the great i am the becoming one he will become whatever you need him to be and if you're here tonight man and you don't know this wonderful savior this wonderful lord jesus christ our prayer is that the Holy Spirit has brought God's word alive in your heart. As the worship, uh, worship team leads us in a, in a time of worship, during this time, if God has spoken to your heart and you recognize your need for Jesus Christ, then as we worship, you get up out of your seat, you make your way down the aisles towards the steps up front. I'll meet you there. And when the song's over, we'll pray together a simple prayer of faith.